mighty grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, we uh, are so thankful for the ways that you have uh, shown us your love through Christ and um, redeemed us and Lord, brought us together to study more about your church and that we would turn to your word, God, that you would illuminate that to our hearts and minds and that, Lord, we would continue to rejoice in the wondrous work that you have done in your church, God that you would make her a pure bride and that you would continue, Lord, that great work of sanctification, that we might be well prepared, that our hearts um, might turn to you more as we look at your word and that uh, we would uh, uh, just have the truth of the word uh, continue towards us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, let me begin by asking you guys just just briefly we're going to jump into deacons today first we talked about elders last time won't spend a lot of time on deacons um not because they're unimportant but just because there isn't tons and tons of biblical explanation of their role so we'll spend some time on deacons and then we're going to spend time on membership how many of you guys are actively in membership in a church currently okay I.e., when, what I mean by that, how many of you had to go through, like, classes, interview, oh covenant, goodness. all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Anybody have to do that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that? I asked that. Oh, was that bad, huh, Joel? The, um, <laughs> I, no, the people make it sound like. It's, membership is a pretty rare commodity anymore in the church. And so when I even bring up the idea of talking about church membership, people are generally asking me, like, well, why are we going to talk about that? That's... That's not something anybody really does. Um, historically, if you were in a Southern Baptist church, for example, if you were on the membership rolls, you actually would be on the membership rolls often until you died, even if you moved, um, and sometimes even after your death. Uh, the reason for that, and, and especially in the South, which we don't really aren't familiar with, is they own their own cemeteries, and that people would get upset, even if they moved away, that they were being taken off the membership rolls because they wanted the right to be buried there. Um, at the church cemetery, and so that was one of these things that would often happen. Um, on the West Coast, though, with the Calvary Chapel movement, etc., there's almost no talk about church membership. Um, it's very rare. Often membership is something like you walk up front after the service and sign a little card, and then you're in, right? Okay, so um, what, what I want to do is talk about that biblically, what is church membership, I want to talk about deacons. What are deacons? A lot of churches don't have deacons, or if they do have deacons, they have two things. They have a senior pastor and a deacon board. You guys heard of that? Okay. And the deacon board sort of serves like in place of an elder, a group of elders. Um, we dealt with elders slash pastors last week. That's one group, uh, and there's supposed to be a plurality. This week, I want to jump into deacons. Deacons are, if it, it when I talk about the elders being, if you will, the spiritual leaders in the church, the shepherds, the deacons are the ministers of mercy. If you are going to sum up what the role of the deacon is, it's the minister of mercy. It's the, uh, that word dikaionos means servant. That's what the word means. That's it. It just means servant. The minister of mercy. So let's look at the first model for deacons in Acts chapter 6. <coughs> Acts chapter 6. What I also want to see as we look here is how um, how the local church um, 
is a really a local invisible body that's actually dealing with various issues within their body. But look, look in verse 1. Now, remember the church is very young here, okay? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What, what's interesting here, just to, just to stop and think about, this is the early church in Acts. They know who the Hellenists are and the Hebrews are. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking um, Jews, and the Hebrews are Hebrew-speaking Jews. But they, they are able to number these two groups because they're able to number who's in their church. And they're even able to recognize which people are getting a distribution of food daily and which ones aren't. Okay, So there's more organization than we like to give the early church credit for. Generally, when we come to the early, early church, we imagine that they're just a bunch of hippies I smoke in weed while they're running around in their VWs, okay? That isn't what the early church was like. They were quite well organized, okay? They, they, you guys follow it? Quite well organized. They have councils. They have distribution of food. They're able to distinguish who's who. All right? Okay, let's, let's go on. And the whole, or excuse me, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Now notice this. They summoned the full number of of the disciples, so they know who they are, and said, now, how are the people in the church referred to here? What are they called? There, there's a number of them, and they're disciples, and they call together the whole number of the disciples. How do they know how many they have? Right? See, it's, they, they saw the church visibly. Are you guys following me on this? Mm -hmm. Not just, I mean, is there an invisible church? When we started, we talked about the invisible church, the visible church. Invisible church are all true believers everywhere throughout the world. You can't identify them. The visible church are all those who are identifiable as a part of the body of Christ or a local church. They're actually able to summon the full number of the disciples. Here are all, that's how they were known as the visible church. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, we have more important things to do than serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will, devote our, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So notice they're picking out these seven men. Who's picking them out? The disciples. The disciples are. Which means that these, these church members of this local body have some responsibility and authority here, don't they? So they're picking them out. Pick out for yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we then will appoint. In other words, the apostles are appointing them, but the disciples are identifying them, aren't they? Isn't that interesting? So if you go on, but we'll do ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed. This is being the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. This is, this is an ordination. That's what we call ordination. You lay your hands on and pray. That's what ordination is, the laying on of hands and prayer. So they ordained them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Speaking of the Jewish priests. All right. 
So they appoint these men. What we start to see is a division of labor. You guys follow me on that? There's a division of labor. And what <laughs> what and I don't want to say these are the first deacons in the truest sense. Though the word deacon is used of them when they're serving the tables, that's the word deacon. But I don't want to say purely these are deacons, because they're not deacons as they've evolved in the purest sense. Because here you have apostles, and then you have these seven. You follow me on that? It's not elders and deacons quite, but it's it's where you begin to see the division of labor and the idea of deacons coming up the first time. So, you have apostles, and what's their ministry? The ministry of the what? Word. Of the word, prayer. And then what's the ministry of the of these seven men who are set apart? Serving. Service. Particularly here, taking care of these widows, which makes them ministers of mercy. You follow me on that? Mm-hmm. So if one group is ministers of the word, the other group is ministers of mercy. Does understand that? If one group is, um, as one of my former friends would say, taking care of the air war, one group is taking care of the ground war. You follow that? Okay. And so you see these guys come out. Now, these guys aren't fully deacons in the same sense as we might think, because who's the first martyr? Stephen in this group, who's preaching, who's, you know, we see go out preaching and evangelizing Philip. So these guys do and also become ministers of the word. So I don't want to just put them purely in the category of deacon. But what I want to drive at is you see the beginning of this understanding that in order to care for the needs of the body, there needs to be a division of labor. Some who are especially focused on the ministry of the word, some who are especially focused on the ministry of service um, for the physical body or the ministers of mercy. You guys follow me on that? That's where we begin to see the, the, the model develop. Uh, both groups being set apart <clears throat> no, and recognized by the congregation. All right. Then we find out there's, there are such a thing as deacons eventually and elders. If you will, the apostles pass on the ministry of the word to the elders, and they pass on the ministry of mercy to the deacons. Okay? That's, how, that's how it happens. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we... We're here last week as we looked at elders, but I want to come back and notice that there's also this category called deacons. Look at verse 8. So he lays out what an elder is, and he lays out what a deacon is. Again, the word deacon here is the word servant, okay? But it seems to be some kind of specific office of servants. If you will, everybody in the church is a servant, right? And in some sense, everybody in the church is a minister of the word, because what are we supposed to do? Speak the word to one another, right? So all of us are supposed to pray, <coughs> sing ha- psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, etc., etc. So we're all ministers of the word. We're all servants, using our gifts, etc., serving one another. But there's these offices where some are set apart specifically as pastors, shepherds, overseers, ministers of the word, and some are set apart specifically as servants or ministers of mercy. You guys follow me on that? Okay, as offices, if you will. So verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So these have to be godly men. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Not only have to be godly men, they have to be godly men who believe the truth. Okay? Now, they're not called on here to teach sound doctrine. 
and refute those who contradict, or to be able to teach like you see with elders. But they are called on here to be those who hold fast to the same doctrine. You guys follow me on that? Okay. They don't necessarily have to be teachers or defenders of it, but they have to hold fast to it. Okay, go on to verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, which is a bit redundant, but if they prove themselves blameless. Now, we used this word blameless before. Blameless does not mean they've never sinned, or they do never sin. Blameless means that there's not any charge of habitual sin you can bring against them. You could bring a charge of, hey, you know, there's some small sins in these ways that you're dealing with, but, but this kind of habitual disqualifying sin. Do you guys follow me on that? All right. And they go on. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. That's similar to the elders, right? For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the layout for deacons. I don't want to repeat what all of these character attributes mean because we did them last week. But these are essentially as men who have the same character qualifications as elders. The only difference between the character qualifications for a deacon and an elder is that elders are supposed to be able to teach or to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Other than that, as far as qualifications, the deacon qualifications are the same. You guys follow me on that? So these are two groups of godly men with two different functions on the team. This isn't like elders are varsity and deacons are JV. And man, if I could just make the varsity someday. Okay? That's not what we have here. These are men who recognize we're all godly men but we have different functions on this team. I, it's a godly man who recognizes, I'm a godly man, but I'm never going to be the guy who teaches sound doctrine and refutes those who contradict. I'm just not the shepherd that those guys are, but I love to serve people. I love to care for the needs of people. That's me, and I want to be a part of that team. So I serve with these guys. You guys follow me on that? Now, you might be a guy who can do those things too, but it's not required that you're able to do those things too. Your, the primary focus of the deacon's ministry is on the physical needs of the body. The primary focus of the elder's ministry is on the spiritual needs of the body. One are ministers of the word, the other are ministers of mercy. You guys follow me on that? All right. Um, any questions about deacons there? Fairly clear, anything that pops into your head? What about this? Great question. Thank you very much. That, that is actually the next thing I wanted to get to. So, <laughs> logically moves there. Look at Romans chapter 16. Keep your hand in 1 Timothy 3, though. Look at Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> this is probably the clearest reference to a female deacon. And there's no small amount of discussion about this among various groups. Look at verse 1 of Romans 16. I commend you, our sister Phoebe. Now, notice it says, a servant of the church at Centuria. That word is deaconess. Okay. Um, some guys translate it as servant because they don't know, 
did she hold the office of deaconess? In other words, is the, was there an actual office? You guys follow me on that? Or was she just a well-known deacon in the church in the sense that she served the church well, but she wasn't a office-holding deacon? You guys follow the distinction? Okay. Um, and so you get some controversy about that. Now, um, and he says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And here he means she's a she seems to be almost a financial supporter of Paul and probably others. All right, now, go back to 1 Timothy 3. This is where we get into this question. Verse 11, it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That word there for wives can also be translated women. Okay, so women likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So there's no small controversy over, is that saying there are women deacons? In other words, here's what the men must be like, here's what the women must be like. Because it seems a little strange that suddenly the deacons' wives have to be this way, but it doesn't say anything about how the elders' wives need to be. Right? So why do deacons have to have godly wives, but elders don't seem to have to have godly wives, right? So there's some... Elders not supposed to be married. There's elders, yeah. <laughs> elders to be married, but... So there's no little dispute over that. The problem is in 1 Timothy 2, the same word wives there, we think, is more appropriately translated women. And so then there's uh, a discussion about should it be wives or women here? Right, and so we get into these kinds of debates in translation. And a lot of times in your translations, what they'll do is they'll put a little number or footnote of some kind, and then they'll tell you it could also be translated this way. You just have that in your notes? Yeah. Right? Um, so what's, what's the deal there then? Right? And guys get into various disputes. Of course, if you look at verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Manage their own children and household well. Which is why the translators chose to translate verse 11 with their wives. Um, because it seems strange to say a deacon could be a female and she could be the husband of one wife, managing her own household and children well. So then you get into these disputes. What is it? I, I would tell you this. At Sovereign Grace, we believe that you can have male and female deacons. However, we only lay hands on in the practice of Act 6, of the model of Act 6, we only lay hands on slash ordain male deacons. Okay, so in other words, we're about to lay hands on or ordain deacons um, sometime in the early winter period, and we're only going to lay hands on or ordain male deacons. With that said, we do believe women can serve the church. In fact, we have two who are employed by the church, one part-time and one full-time. So we're not saying women can't serve or be deacons in the church. We just don't ordain female deacons. We ordain male elders and male deacons, and that's it. That's what Sovereign Grace practices. Now, if you pushed me on that, though, I'd say we had a long... I mean, we didn't even go to deacons, ordaining deacons officially, because as a group of elders, it took us nearly three years to decide what we were going to do with this controversy in the text. Because, frankly, it's, it's just not abundantly clear. 
be honest with you. I hate to leave you there. But I will point you to guys who think, man, this is, there's only male deacons. And I'll point you guys to think, there's all, there are female deacons. And those are both going to be good sets of scholars with good sets of arguments. And they say, well, what do I do? Right? Okay. We've just decided we'll have an, a category of ordained elders and deacons and a category of non-ordained, if you will, elders and deacons. So our non-ordained elders are often guys who are really serving as grace group leaders. They're not elders, but they're shepherding people. So we train them to shepherd people, but we don't ordain them to make them overseers of the church. Do you guys follow me on the distinction there? Okay. So I that's just the category we've fallen into following the pat, the pattern, really, of the Presbyterian Church of America, not the PCUSA that ordains homosexuals, the PCA, which is a conservative <coughs> Presbyterian organization, sort of followed their pattern on that. Joel? In verse 11, it says their wives. So is, is there not in the Greek? In other words, it's assumed in English we need it. Yeah, Because when you read that in English, it sure sounds like their women. It sure doesn't. What, they got a harem? <laughs> they're, they're, they're women. They're women. Yeah. Or their wives. <laughs> I can see why in English we use wives. But it, it, I was just curious. Um, not that I think you've memorized the New Testament in Greek. I haven't, but I can look it up real quick. The, um, because that just seems like it makes it kind of clear to me. It makes it less clear to you. No, it makes it more clear. I mean, it, regardless if you want to put the word um, wives. No, it, it 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 doesn't use the word there. That's an addition. That's an addition. Yeah, that's an addition. So, all right, this is translation decisions that are always being made, guys. Just so you know, we often add verbs because there's an assumed verb in a prior phrase that's assumed forward in the next <coughs> phrase. Right, and the way they think. So that you guys... <coughs> Things that we have to have in English, they didn't have to have in Greek. Correct. Correct. And I would say that um, this is why it's important that pastors learn the languages. The Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. Thus, the Hebrew and Greek pastors should go. Alright. Um, any other questions on deacons? Anything else, guys? <coughs> All right, let's get to membership. Let me ask you right off um, about members of the local church, okay? What, when you guys hear the word church membership, what do you tend to hear? What do you think of when you hear the word church membership? Anybody? Belonging. Okay, belonging. Well, that's a very positive one. Good. Anybody think of anything negative? Business meetings. Business meetings? <laughs> All right. It's Numbers. The first Wednesday of every month. Say it again, Jim. Numbers. Numbers? Okay. Exclusive. What do you mean by? Just another number of the church. It's just. Oh. We got something to brag about. We got census. some of the numbers. Yeah. Census. Census. Yeah, some sort of census. Which, by the way, they did number of the disciples, incidentally, go through go through Acts, they, and and go through the book of Numbers, right? They always the people of God were often numbered, but it can be used to like sort of drive up. Here's how many we have. All right, if your membership's bigger than your attendance, you have a problem that you 
So the uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, I used to I used to think of, of um, back when I went to a church that I was not a member. I used to think, well, they're they're the flock. They're the the, the people that the pastor was responsible for. I'm kind of like this outsider hanging around. Yeah. Okay, so they're the people the pastor is responsible for. Okay. Made you feel like an outsider. Okay. Maybe that was good. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Any, any, anybody ever think, uh, anybody ever heard the accusation? Well, membership's like, we're not joining the country club. <laughs> right? What did that join the membership of the church for? What's that about? You guys ever thought about that or heard that? Okay. Um, we've probably more than any other issue had people leave sovereign grace over the fact that we value membership. Isn't it because you're Calvinist that people leave? No, not usually. <laughs> Occasionally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They haven't all watched the Fietti video yet. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know that we're wolves and heretics. But, but they'll find out eventually that we, yeah, that we, yeah. But, but that's not generally why they leave. You would think that'd be the issue. There have been people who've left over that issue, but very rarely. The primary issue we've had people leave over in the history of this church has been membership. That might be surprising to you. But I've had more people come to me and say, we love this church, but the fact that you think that we should have church membership is the reason that I'm leaving. That's weird. More than any other reason. So they don't don't want to become members? They 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 think membership is unbiblical. No, listen, I was 17, 18, well, 19 years in a church that I don't know that I was a member of, but I, I was a pastor there. The, um, so, you know, but the, um, <laughs> you worked there, you remember? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Anyway, the point being is that um, it's, that's foreign to a lot of people. The reason I bring that up is it's so foreign, um, especially in the West, because we're so individualistic and anti-authority, and so you know so autonomous that something like becoming a part of a group and having to submit in some way to a group of people that's revulsive to us. We're we're so anti-authority that uh, Tim Keller talks about how on the on the East Coast when they plant churches on the East Coast, he says on the East Coast when we plant churches we always put the name of our denomination. So he's Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It says because there, if you're in New York and you don't have a denomination people recognize, they think you're a cult. Okay? When you say Presbyterian, okay, I know what a Presbyterian is. They're legit. Okay? <coughs> Whatever community, what? Is that some kind of cult? Okay? So, because they're more historically rooted as a culture. But the further you go west, the less historically rooted the culture is. And so out here, when you name a church, you don't put a denominational name in it generally because people will think you're a cult. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The, the, the real difference there in, uh, so out here, people avoid putting denominational names in their churches. In the case of some denominations, that's actually true that they're a cult. Yeah, well, 
In some cases, yes, but we wouldn't call them denominations then. We would call them cults. So, all right. <laughs> okay, that's the difference. Okay, so when we're talking, so the idea of church membership and belonging to a group, and all, it's really difficult, particularly in the Western U.S., particularly. So um, here's what I'm going to assert. Membership in the local and visible body of Christ is not optional. That's my assertion. Membership in the local and visible body of Christ is not optional. It isn't an option. It's required biblically. Now, that's a pretty big statement. I'm telling you, church membership is biblical, and it's biblically required. Not optional. All right, so look at, let's do a quick biblical theological argument for the visible body of Christ and the importance of being a part of the visible body of Christ, okay? <coughs> let, let, let me start here. The Garden of Eden, I'm, I'm talking about the, the body of Christ from the beginning to the end, okay? Beginning of the Bible is biblical theology. You say, the body of Christ, were Adam and Eve Christians? Yes. Yes, they were Christians. How do I know? Look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, now look at verse 15. God gets about to cursing them. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now what's this a promise of? Christ. Christ, the offspring of the woman who will come and save them. Now that death is on them now, you follow? Because they've eaten the fruit. Death is upon them. So the offspring of this woman will bring life. He'll be the Savior who brings life. You guys follow me? Okay. Now, look at, do they believe that promise? Well, look at verse 20. Same chapter. They come right out of the curse, and the first thing that happens, the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. What is Adam doing there? Changed his wife's name. Why? What's he believing? He's believing the promise of Genesis 3.15. She's going to be the mother of all the living. This seed that's coming from her is going to be saving us. Now, verse 21 and the Lord God made. Now what does he do when he be they believe his promise? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So he covers their sin, right? They try to use a fig leaf, the Lord covers them. <laughs> Through the shedding of blood. Is there not a picture of the gospel there? They're believing? <clears throat> so, the Garden of Eden is the first place where the... God's people, if you will, were gathered. God's visible people are in the garden. And there's an inside, and there's an outside. There are those inside the garden, and those outside the garden. In other words, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Don't they? Okay? Alright. Noah's Ark also had an inside and an outside, didn't it? So if you go to Noah's Ark, 
Some people believe. Some people don't. The people who believe are in the ark. The people who don't are outside the ark. Okay? In other words, you see this idea that the people of God are inside, but people that were not following the Lord are outside. You go down to the people of God in the wilderness. They had to be remain ceremonial clean to be where? Inside, inside. inside the camp. And not be to, to not be cast outside the camp. You guys follow me on this? Okay. The nation of Israel was to have an inside and an outside. And how was the nation of Israel to represent their inside and outside? Represented by food laws, festivals, political boundaries, places of worship, and, and, and incredibly strong provisions against intermarriage with pagans. Now, what's interesting is, and we can chew on this later, the nation of Israel were not just the ethnic genetic descendants of Abraham. It was anybody who believed in the promise made to Abraham, even Gentiles, and they could be circumcised and be Jews. Okay? So I want to be clear, um, that was always that way, all the way through the Old Testament. But they had to take on what? They had to take on circumcision. They had to take on the food laws. They had to take on the ceremonial laws. They had to go through the same process to be inside the camp. You guys follow me? Okay. All right. In the New Testament, the ethnic and cultural boundary markers of the Old Testament are exploded. They're, they're blown up. Those ethnic and cultural boundary markers don't exist in the same way. Um, because you don't have a nation state anymore. In the New Testament, you now have a spiritual nation or a church. You guys follow me on that? Um, in, in the way we define it now. But a clear, bright line remains between those who are God's people and those who are not, as indicated by their profession of faith, their, the visible fruit in their lives, as well as two practices. What are they? Baptism, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we're going to get into next week. Um, Baptism and Lord's Supper are what give the substance and shape to church membership. There's an inside, those who have been baptized and are welcome to the Lord's table. And an outside, those who have not been baptized and are not welcome to the Lord's table. That's how the New Testament church looks. You guys follow me on that? Now, now, notice, in the Old Testament, they were circumcised, they were inside. They could take Passover, etc. In the New Testament, they're baptized. <clears throat> they're inside. They can participate in the Lord's Supper, etc. If you're not baptized in the New Testament, you're not a Christian. Now, we don't mean by that that baptism saves you, okay? But everyone who believed was baptized. They were marked as those inside. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, almost immediately, they were. So let's let's see this played out. In 1 Corinthians 5, um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. I want to see it played out just a little bit. We have this inside-outside idea. I, I'm just trying to give you a quick overview of how you have in, those inside and those outside in the Old Testament um, and a bit in the New Testament. But look at 1 Corinthians 5. This kind of language is expressly used. Um, in verse 1, it is actually reported there's sexual morality among you and the kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. Now notice right off, there's a distinction between you and them out there. Okay, right off. Sexual morality among you, it wouldn't even be tolerated by them out there. Now, 
he goes on and tells them you need to deal with this sin in your body because it's destroying the body and you need to judge these people and deal with them. Um, and then if you go down to uh, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, this guy who calls himself a brother, if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, so they call themselves brothers and they're guilty of this. You ought to put them outside. Now look what he says, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right? That last part of that last verse, purge the evil person from among you, as churches adopt themes every year. Nobody ever adopts that one, right? <laughs> Our theme this year is purge the evil people from among you. All right, so the, uh, <laughs> we're going to put it up on the banners inside the church, right? It's a biblical verse, why not? All right, so here's the light. Delight, develop, declare, purge. Yeah, all right, so... <laughs> all right, so you guys, it just doesn't quite, we have to find a D word for that. Delete. Delete. Yeah. <laughs> okay, or discipline. Yeah. All right, so... Delete, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> but you notice this, they can identify who's inside and who's outside. They can even identify professing believers who are outside and not associate with them because they're outside, because to be outside is a bad thing. Now, now we have lots of professing believers in the U.S. who self-excommunicate. They delete themselves. They purge themselves from outside to the outside. They've excommunicated themselves from the body of Christ. They're not in communion with anybody. They're outside. It's a terrible thing to be excommunicated from the church. It blows me away that people actually excommunicate themselves. To be excommunicated is to be declared an unbeliever. So to excommunicate yourself is to carry around the status of a professing believer who the church visibly ought to see as an unbeliever. Because you're living as one. Disconnected from the body of Christ, you're living as an outsider. Not as one inside. You guys follow the distinction there? All the way through the Bible you see the distinction between people of God are inside. Those outside are treated as unbelievers. This is why the early church could say things like, there is only salvation in the church. People think, what? What do you mean? There's salvation if I believe in Jesus. Yes, they're not talking about who saves you. They're not saying the church saved you and Jesus doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. What they're saying is, there is no normative way throughout Scripture to be identified as one who's saved apart from the body of Christ. They're also saying something mystical, which is, that if you're saved, you are in fact united to the body of Christ. So to act like it makes no sense. To act like you're not, I'm sorry, united to the body of Christ makes no sense. 
Okay. All right. Um, now let's get to some systematic theological arguments because those are all biblical. That's sort of a biblical theology of inside outside of the body of Christ. But I want to deal with the biblical theological or the systematic theological arguments. So let let's start here. Romans chapter twelve. Romans chapter twelve. Um, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12. The first thing to, to identify theologically is uh, that church membership is a biblical word. It's not just a biblical idea. It's a biblical word. Uh, let's look at verse 3. <clears throat> For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members. What? There's members there. Yeah, there is. You know what membership is? It's the adjectival form of the word member. We have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually... Members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy and proportion in our faith, of service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, these are members who are actually actively caring for one another. This doesn't belong to the invisible church. Now, are you made a member of the body of Christ via, i.e., are you in the invisible church? Yes, but you also are expected to be in the visible church because you can't care for one another as members of the body of Christ in this way as a part of the invisible church. You guys follow me on that? Okay. All right, 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. And now let's look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many, oh, 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 there it is again, members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, I, but I, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make, not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
In other words, there's no member of the body who's not useful to the rest of the body. This, this can't happen or be fulfilled in the invisible church. It's a visible local church that cares for one another. Look at the next phrase. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with foreign languages? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Okay. Um, is that clear at all to you guys? I could go on and on about that. Then he talks about the way we love one another in the body, which is impossible to do with invisible people. Invisible people are impossible to love. Right? And to hurt with. I would hurt with you if I knew you existed. All right. Um, it was the normal pattern. So we see that phrase actually biblically. Now, it's the normal pattern of Christians to gather together regularly in the churches. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and, and we know that they added several believers. Now verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together, not spread out invisibly, together. Had all, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, oh, they could number them, they did, day by day, those who were being saved. You guys follow what's happening here? What are the believers doing? All these people become believers, and what do we read, immediately read about them? Gathering. They're gathering together. There's fellowship, worship, tending to the apostles' doctrine, caring for one another, in each other's homes. Okay? This is the expected pattern of the way of life for believers. Well, we don't gather together every day, but that doesn't mean that this isn't the pattern that's set for us. That we're supposed to be in each other's lives, actually caring for each other in real ways. All right? Meaning to get in the Word together. So, Chad, does yes, this sir? verse tell us that church potlucks are, visible, are, are biblical? Because <laughs> um, they ate together. Church potlucks can sure, certainly happen, though. I object to the concept of a potluck. <laughs> Church meals together. I think I could make a biblical <laughs> argument for a potluck being unclean. All right. You <laughs> <laughs> don't have a theology of the lust. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Go. <laughs> 
chapter 4, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sure we should have some Bible verses. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I, what I want to look at is, it, it, so listen, if church membership is a biblical word and necessary for us to serve one another, if it's the normal pattern of Christians being gathered together in local churches, if it, it's only Christians gathered to a local body who can serve one another with their gifts, this next one is it's only Christians gathered together in a local church who can speak the truth and love to one another. L look at what's said here at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, now how can you do this with an invisible body? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it is each part of the body has to be working properly, serving one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, for the body to grow into maturity. You want to know how spiritual maturity comes, or sanctification comes? It comes through the body loving one another, Speaking the truth to one another. Ministering to one another. <clears throat> Sanctification is not primarily an individualistic project. Sanctification is primarily a group project. A community thing that happens. Every time you go through scripture, we find sanctification is something that happens within the context of the body. Alright, I'll give you an example of that. Look at Galatians 5. don't have to move back very far. <clears throat> now, now, I want you to notice verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. One fruit, those aren't the fruits of the Spirit. That isn't plural. Okay, it's one fruit, singular. <clears throat> fruit of the Spirit. This is mul the multi, if you will, the multiple aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one piece of fruit. It's a good piece of fruit if it has these characteristics. Do you follow? Okay. Alright. That one piece of fruit has these characteristics. How can these characteristics be shown apart from community relationships? Or relationships within a community? Man, I am incredibly patient when no one else is around. And loving. And loving. I'm at peace. I'm kind to nobody. Okay? Right? I show self-control when I'm by myself. It's probably not true for young men, but it needs to be. Okay? So, so what, you, guys, you guys notice what happens here? These are all relational characteristics, aren't they? They're all relational characteristics. 
sanctification that happens to us is something that happens relationally, and it affects relationships. Why is that? Because we have a Trinitarian God who's eternally in relationship. The only kind of creatures he can create are relational creatures. That's why the first time you get a not good is it's not good the man should be what? Alone. So he makes a helpmate for him. Because you can't reflect the image of God by yourself. The image of God is reflected only fully through relationship. I don't mean you can't be single and reflect the image of God, but how does that happen? It happens within the context of the body of Christ. Together, we reflect the image of Christ, which is why Jesus can say things like, they're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. You guys follow me on that? Okay. All right. Um, it's also it's only in the context of the local church that Christians can gather to sing hymns with one another. Look at Ephesians 5, this command we're given. In Ephesians 5 and verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine. I actually think that's that that um, word there in the Greek is, an, is agency, so it should be... I think it should read by wine. Do not get drunk by wine. In other words, wine being the agent that does the getting, that does gets you drunk, rather than the substance that fills you. In other words, Paul's point isn't don't get, don't have your belly full of wine, right? Okay, that's not his point. His point is wine is an agent that causes you to be drunk. You guys follow me on that? Don't let that happen. Do not get drunk with wine, or by wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled, and I think why I think this is better said. By the Spirit. In other words, you're not being filled with the Spirit like He's the substance of the filling. You're being filled by Him. He's the divine agent doing the filling. And what's He filling you with? Well, look at the next phrase. This is a continuation. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, that doesn't mean like psalms are the Old Testament hymns. Hymns are the things written by like Isaac Watts and spiritual songs are Maranatha music. Okay, That isn't the point. Right? This is talking about biblical songs, all right? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think it's probably actually better translated submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ, and then we get examples of what those submission relationships look like. One to another. Wives to husbands, parent or children to parents, slaves to masters, etc., etc. But here's the point: How do you do any of this outside of a local visible body? Um, it's only in the context of a local church that Christians can identify the leaders whom they're to respect and follow and submit to. I read First Thessalonians five twelve thirteen, Hebrews thirteen seven, Hebrews thirteen seventeen last week where we're told to respect those who labor among you, esteem them highly in love, Hebrews 13, 7. Follow your, your leaders, follow the example of their faith in your lives, Hebrews 13, 17. Submit to your leaders, right? Don't make their job hard for them because they're ones who must give an account for you. How can any of that account, who do I account for? The invisible church? Which leaders are you supposed to follow? Who are you supposed to respect? Who are you supposed to share all good things with those who teach you? Who's that? 
Does that mean I, do you guys follow me on that? These are all people who can be identified. Who's supposed to let, you know, appoint these elders and deacons? Be a part of that. Could you go as far as who's your neighbor? Yeah. So then it, that's only in that, in that context, the church context? Yeah. So it's only the context of a local church that church discipline can happen. Take it to the church. So what does that mean we're supposed to do in the era of the invisible church? Are we supposed to satellite broadcast that baby all around the world when we do church discipline so everybody can participate? Or is taking it to the church a reference to a local body of believers? Right? 1 Corinthians 5, same thing I just read to you earlier. Okay? Church discipline is, a, it is an essential function of the body. It happens in the context of a local church. Um, it, well, I made the comment earlier that sanctification can only happen within the context of a local body, and we joke in the office here that spentification can only happen within the context of a local body, right? Which is church discipline, right? Okay. So anyway, Man. you guys follow me? <laughs> we now realize you guys have way too much We're like, time for a little bit of a time for a little bit of spentification. All right. <laughs> church that elders elders and deacons can serve. It's only a kind of local church they can care for the flock among them. If you think about Acts 20, uh, 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you. Who's that? Those among you. Not those outside, those inside. Keep watch over the flock. Watch over the flock. Which one? Who's you, you guys follow me on that? Okay. It's only the context of church membership that we can make any sense out of what we read in 1 Timothy 5.3 and following. Look at 1 Timothy 5.3. Also, the responsibility of the congregation. This makes no sense outside of the idea of of a local body, visible body of believers. 1 Timothy 5.3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show God godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing the sight of God. In other words, their family members should take care of these widows. They have a family. She who is truly a widow, that means she has she's left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead while she, even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now look at verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. This was supposed to distinguish between true and false widows, and then was to be enrolled. Where? If she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the husband of one wife and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. Now, enroll them where? on the invisible church list. Right? Another question. What good does it do to have them enrolled if there's no body to serve them? Yeah, and and there's nobody for them to serve. The enrollment here is for them to be cared for while they serve the body. You, You guys follow me on that? That means there's a list somewhere in this local church. 
And then they identify their elders down in 1 Timothy 5.17, and they set apart those who rule well for pay, to be paid, and teach well to be paid. And then down it talks about, and you can't bring any charges against your elders. Who, who, who brings the charges? Believers, the body. And then you're supposed to rebuke them in front of all. Again, are we supposed to satellite that around the world, or is that talking about a local church when they're rebuked in front of all? Can you follow me on that? This is the biblical pattern. It's relentless. It's a relentless biblical pattern. Why is church membership... This seems to have, at least in my mind, and I'm prejudiced against certain things, but a lot of implication on these satellite churches. <laughs> Even though they have a like campus pastor, it's, it's, it's odd that the, they wouldn't get that teaching directly. Yeah. Anyway, well, I I, I could I could give you track, but I, you know. I could give you about twenty to thirty reasons why I'm not a fan of the satellite campus. However, I'm not spending this morning doing that. So if you want to read them, I, I actually Jonathan Lehman listed most of mine on an article on the Nine Marks um, website. I think he, what does he call it? Twenty two reasons he's not in favor of the satellite church or something. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you guys know that's a big popular thing, right? You've got the pastor in one building, and then you, because he's so popular, you broadcast him into other buildings, and um, and he goes down in flames. Of course, you always you always admit that there has to be some connection between those leading worship and the congregation, and you admit that by virtue of having a live band. You just don't admit that by virtue of having a live preacher, which is an interesting admission that you're making of, of the two in things. one sense and then not in the other. But um, satellite campuses are huge. They're popular all over the country. Several of my friends actually have them. Most of those guys don't have video venues, though. They, they actually have live preachers and various... So they're all one church with live preachers at lo different locations. But, which sounds like a mini denomination sounds within like a city. Sounds like the beginning of Presbyterian. It, is, it sounds like a Presbyterian movement, exactly. Or, or organizational. Exactly. So, but... But if you want to read more about that, I'm not going to address it today. If you want to read more about that, go to Nine Marks. I think Jonathan Lehman puts an article like 22 reasons he doesn't like the satellite church or whatever. Um, if you're really interested in that, that's an article there. So, why is church membership at Sovereign Grace formally covenantal? See, Sovereign Grace, we have a formally covenantal um, membership. In other words, it's not just the people gathered here, but we have a formal process to identify members, and it's covenantal. In other words, we actually covenant together formally. Why do we do that? Well, let, let me give you some reasons why Sovereign Grace has chosen that practice. Biblical theological reasons. They're going to be quick. God relates to men only through formal covenants. That's the first reason we do it. Every time God relates to men, it's always through a formal covenant and only through a formal covenant. He never relates to any man outside of a formal covenant. And in that way, and a covenant, by the way, is a relational agreement. It's relational agreement, okay? It's how you relate how you relate to one another. This means that, by the way, one of the fallacies out there that's taught in Christianity is what you need is a personal relationship with God. You don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. You need a personal relationship with the Lord. Everyone has a personal relationship with the Lord. Everyone. Even unbelievers have a personal relationship with the Lord. The problem they have is the nature of the personal relationship they have with the Lord. They have a personal relationship in which they are under his curses. Or under the curse. But they're in a personal relationship. 
They're in covenant with him. It's just a bad one that needs reconciliation. That's why the word reconciliation is used. Okay? They're in a personal relationship that's quite negative. You guys follow me on that? Um, they need to be in a different kind of relationship with the Lord. One that's reconciled through Christ. You guys follow me on that? So, God only relates to men through formal covenants. And if you don't believe that, go read your Bible. Right? In Hosea, even what happens with Adam and Eve is called a covenant. But if you go through, and it's actually all the structures and stipulations of covenant as well. But if you go through and look at, God makes a covenant with Noah, with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. He even has a covenant with Phineas, which is a subset of the covenant with Moses. But the point is, he comes down, David, new covenant. This is new covenant in my blood. He always relates through formal covenants. Okay? As image bearers of God, we relate to one another covenantally. We just do. That's how we relate to one another. Both formally, we relate to one another in formal covenants, like what's an example of a formal covenant by which we relate to one another? Marriage. Marriage. And, and contracts. Mm -hmm. Essentially that we... Here are the stipulations of this relationship. You guys follow me? Here's what happens if you violate the terms of the relationship. Here's what happens if you keep the terms of the relationship. We have formal covenants in our relationships and in marriage, and we relate to one another covenantally in an informal sense. Not just formally, but informally. So, for example, you have a covenant with every relationship you're in. You may not believe that or know that because you may not have it formally set down in stone, but you will know when you violate the terms of that covenant. <laughs> Whether they're stated or not, they will let you know. You violated the terms of the covenant between us. That's what happens, right? We're friends. I somehow harm our friendship. I have now violated the stipulations of this relationship, whether they were written down or not. You guys follow me on that? And now we have to become reconciled. So God relates to men only through formal covenants. As image bearers, we relate to one another both through covenants always, both formally and informally. And so formal covenants are our vehicle as a church. Sovereign Grace uses formal covenants as a way to establish what is already being informally covenanted. In other words, when we're coming together, there's an informal covenant that's already occurring, and we just formalize it and say, here are what the biblical stipulations are to what the church relationships are supposed to look like. That's why we formalize those. Does that make sense? Okay. So the membership, I, I just want to sort of wrap up with this. The membership of a local church carries biblical responsibility and authority. This covenanted membership carries biblical responsibility and authority, which can't be exercised in an invisible body. I just review some of these things. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, they carry authority for discipline, and thus responsibility to remove erring brothers. Notice that? There's an authority and a responsibility there. An authority to discipline or, or remove an erring brother, and the responsibility to do it. It's a command. Paul's astonished that they won't. There's the, the, they, they hold a, an authority and responsibility for commissioning people to mission. Acts chapter 13. Who sets apart Paul and Barnabas? Church at Antioch. The church at Antioch. They, Acts 15. They have the authority and the responsibility to make appeals to other congregations for doctrinal disputes. 
the, the Jerusalem Council was not called by some group of bishops in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Council was called by the members of a Gentile church wanting answers to problems being brought by the Judaizers. So they have the responsibility, in other words, members have the authority to make an appeal to a larger body of churches that come together to discuss doctrinal disputes. Um, that's why Sovereign Grace has the belief that not only are we, not only are we, um, quote unquote, a congregation, but we have relationships with other congregations whom we can call together to have discussions about doctrinal disputes within our own body. Um, by necessity, we believe that. Second Corinthians 11 and Galatians 1, um, Paul actually comes after the body of Christ for failing in their responsibility to stop bad doctrine from coming into the church. Which includes the authority to remove the, the wolves from among you. What's interesting about that is Paul says to the Galatian church, not to the Galatian elders, but the Galatian church, I'm astonished that you're allowing this to happen, this desertion of the gospel to occur among you. You had a responsibility, church, to stop this false doctrine. You had a responsibility to keep yourself devoted to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11. I, I betrothed you to, as a pure virgin to one husband, and you're quickly running off to other lovers. I, you, I, you have responsibility. To, you guys follow me on that? So it's not just the elder and deacon, elders and deacons' responsibility to guard the flock. It's the members' responsibilities to guard the responsibility to guard the flock. Both. You can say, well, is it primarily the elder and deacons' responsibility? Yes, it's primarily the, the, the job of the elders to equip you, to teach you, so that you can help guard the flock. You guys follow me on that? The pastors are supposed to help you protect the flock from false doctrine by teaching you how to do it so that you don't run off to endless myths false doctrine. That's why Paul can call on the congregation, not just the elders, for their allowing bad doctrine to happen. Okay. You have to have a congregation to do that. Let's say without membership, how do you know who to guard? And who to guard from? Mm -hmm. You don't. So this is why I'm saying, and, you, and you, they actually kept lists and roles, and you guys, this is not, you know, like I said, the Jesus People movement that came out of the 60s and 70s while there were a lot, there was a lot of good to it. They syncretized anti-authoritarian, highly individualistic, autonomous American sort of hippie culture in with Christianity, and they gave us this picture that Jesus and the disciples weren't very organized, didn't have very many structures or systems, didn't look at things very formally. You, you guys follow me on that? And that's just not the picture of the New Testament. It's just not. Didn't go through, I, and I just went through some examples. I didn't go through all of them. There's a lot more. So, any questions? All right. John, you want to pray for us? And we'll close today. We're going to breakfast at Coco's if anyone wants to go. All right, Lord, thank you again just for your word and, and uh, our time together.